Well, hello, everyone. My name is JB with Not By Works Ministries. It's Thursday, May 11th, and I'm excited to have my good friend and colleague Mark Fantecchio joining us from Return to the Word up there in Alaska. He's going to be uh, coming on here in just a moment. wanted to mention a couple of quick uh, words of encouragement as I uh, come to you here uh, from my studio beneath the skies nestled in the tall timbers of the Rocky Mountains. It's a miserable day out there. Winter has decided to make another appearance. We're down in the low 30s with snow and ice, and it's just a yucky day. But thankful to be uh, sitting in a nice warm uh, studio here and uh, looking forward to uh, the weekend and uh, being with you there at Plum Creek Chapel in Sedalia as uh, we continue our study of the book of Acts. If you haven't had a chance yet, I want to encourage you to check out yesterday's World Events Update with Randy, another power-packed uh, message, and uh, he's got some great intel and great info and uh, really appreciated uh, him coming on yesterday. And also, uh, I want to remind you about the upcoming Mid-America Prophecy Conference. We're now 15 days out and counting. That's in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'll be there with uh, Andy Woods, Tommy Ice, and a few other folks. Uh, I'll be speaking twice. Uh, looking forward to, uh, to that conference that we've done every year. This is the 14th annual one. I think it's our 7th in a row. But uh, if you can make it out to Tulsa, we'd love to have you there. Come by and see us at the resource table. My daughter will be with me, my wife. Uh, so and my wife as well. So come out and see us. If not, uh, we will uh, try to record those two messages and post those later to our channel. I don't believe the conference itself is live streamed. I could be wrong about that. But if you click on the link that is uh, uh, linked up there at our website, it'll tell you all about the conference, uh, where to get tickets. Uh, it's at the Tulsa Marriott there. But coming up in 15 days, really looking forward uh, to that. Also want to remind you that next week we will not have our Tuesday night prophecy night. I'll be out of pocket uh, in uh, Oklahoma City with Prophecy Watchers doing some uh, interviews with them for their upcoming conference, which is in October. Uh, so no prophecy night. I hate to miss it, but uh, I think we're due for a break, especially after Tuesday night's UFO uh, night. I mean, we had a uh, just a 90-minute discussion with some Q&A tacked on on top of that about UFOs, UAPs, and all things paranormal. So I encourage you to check that video out. Uh, if you can't watch the video, you can always listen to the audio-only uh, podcast. So I encourage you to, to, to watch for that one. And then uh, lastly, before I bring Mark on, you know, as I mentioned recently on a podcast, we try to uh, take a look at a proverb a day just by way of devotional. And I was reading Proverbs 11. Today is May 11th, of course. And once again, something jumped off the page at me there in verse 4 that should be encouraging to those of us who are tracking the Luciferian conspiracy and, and recognizing that Satan and his earthly co-conspirators are pulling out all the stops to try to usher in this one world system. Uh, he, The proverb reminds us here in verse 4, riches do not profit in the day of wrath but righteousness delivers from death. You know, these globalists who are accumulating massive amounts of wealth, billions and even trillions of dollars, uh, and they think that that brings them power and control. When the day of the Lord's wrath comes, it's going to be meaningless. And uh, that's why Proverbs, or Psalm 2 tells us that God is just laughing at them when they think they can somehow take control of uh, his universe. And so we know who wins in the end. Be encouraged, my friends. Uh, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And today on the podcast, uh, Mark and I decided we want to do a, a quick flyby overview 
of one of the most important books of the Bible when it comes to Bible prophecy, the book of Daniel. You know, the book of Daniel, uh, many Bible prophecy experts, such as the late John Walvoord, who was a mentor of mine, had him as a professor at Dallas Seminary. I've read all of his books, just think he's a one of the preeminent scholars when it comes to dispensational pre-tribulationism. His commentary on Daniel, he titled Daniel, the key to prophetic revelation. And I think you couldn't come up with a better description of the book of Daniel. And my friend Mark is, uh, has taught through Daniel multiple times, and we've dialogued about Daniel. Uh, we, we talk about different key passages within the book, and I thought he would be a great one to come on and just kind of help us uh, take a, a fly-by overview of uh, these 12 chapters uh, in the book of Daniel that tell us so much about God's end times plan. They really uh, are, in fact, the key. If you don't understand Daniel's prophecy, you really can't understand the end times. And that's why I decided you know, to call uh, today's podcast, Why You Should Read Daniel Today. Why every <laughs> believer needs to stop and read this book, because it puts the pieces together in one single prophetic book of the Bible like no other place. Uh, and I know you agree, Mark. Mark, welcome back to the program. Great to have you from Alaska out there in the hinterlands. Well, not exactly the hinterlands. You're in Wasilla, but uh, you can be in the hinterlands in just a few minutes. And uh, I know you just got back from uh, from a, a little getaway, did, did, did you not? Yeah, we did. Uh, thank you, JB. It's so good to be here with you and and uh, not by works. I just love your ministry. Love you, brother, and appreciate always being on. Yeah, we just, uh, my wife and I and our littlest one, we took a, a one one day off yesterday and spent some time up in the mountains. So beautiful day. It's summer in Alaska, and it's uh, brief, but beautiful when it's here. So excited, excited to be talking about the book of Daniel today. Yeah, you bet. And Mark's website is returntotheword.com, uh, returntotheword.com. That's his ministry. He's also a pastor up there at Pioneer Baptist Church in Wasilla, and we've had the privilege of getting to know those folks up there, and and uh, tell them all hello for us, Mark. But, yes, uh, we'll do. Lord willing, look forward to coming back again uh, sometime. So, Mark, um, the book of Daniel, um, just a fascinating book. Um it's, uh, I, I think, the, the, I'll be interested to see what your take is. To me, the theme verse really is Daniel 4.17, the most high rules in the kingdom of men. And it just reminds us that God has a plan of the ages that is being worked out precisely as his word tells us. We've got several famous sections of Daniel that even a casual student of Scripture is going to be familiar with, like the Daniel in the lion's den and the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, those types of things. But really undergirding it all is this outline, if you will, or blueprint for the end of the age, the God's plan of the ages. So uh, I'm going to throw it back to you now. You just sort of take it away. I'll interject some questions here and there and some comments, but uh, give us a an overview, maybe starting with the background and date, when was Daniel written and so forth of this great book. Well, I agree with you, JB. This this is a book that is just um, it, it, what part of the beauty of the book of Daniel, I think is the different levels that you, a student can find themselves in. Like you said, just now, someone that's really steeped in prophecy can look to Daniel seven, Daniel nine, these deeper sections and, and just find meat. But at the, at the same time, 
If you're brand new to the faith, you can pick up Daniel chapter one and start reading and find some practical lessons for your faith, inspiring lessons that um, I've been a Christian since 1993, and I'll tell you, it still challenges me. So what I love about the book of Daniel is just that depth that is found. And you know, one of the things that I I find, JB, is when people don't understand uh, prophecy or New Testament um, concepts, often the root cause is because they haven't studied Daniel. Isn't that amazing? They haven't gone back to the Old Testament and read that first. And if they read the book of Daniel, it's amazing how much that can clarify. And I guess I have in mind Daniel 9, but we won't start there. We'll start with uh, chapter 1. Yeah, and let me add, you know, not only because they haven't read Daniel, but sometimes they've gotten a hold of some bad commentaries on Daniel, some liberal commentaries that that really don't take the literal grammatical historical approach to Scripture like you should. And so, so therefore, that leads them astray as well. So, yeah, I agree. Amen. And I think bad, bad teaching on radio, podcasts, pulpits, all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, and, and there are some just practical lessons. And I think we should start there. Um, as you know, uh, Daniel begins in 605 BC with Nebuchadnezzar coming against Jerusalem. And certainly, I think one of the things that I see right away in chapter one is Daniel and his friends, his his comrades in crime, if you would, um, they are hauled off from Jerusalem off to, to Babylon, and you don't see them having a political protest and marching. You know, um, I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in politics to some degree. I'm not saying that. So don't um, don't don't start with the hate mail. Um, and if you do uh, send it over to not by works ministries care of JB, um, <laughs> Mark, Mark at return to the word.com. There's the email address. No, I, uh, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I totally agree that, uh, you know, the D- D- Daniel chapter one, which I, I know you're going to continue with here in a second is such a powerful encouragement of standing firm in the faith in the midst of, uh, background, but you mentioned 605 BC. So just to add to that, um, by, by 722 BC, the Northern kingdom of Israel, uh, had fallen, uh, Samaria. And then, uh, Daniel is writing at a time when the Southern kingdom and its capital city, Jerusalem were, uh, about to be ransacked and the, the Jewish people, God's chosen nation were being, uh, led off into captivity by the Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar. So yeah, pick it back up. Well, and I tell our people, thank you for bringing up 722 BC. I tell our people, look, you don't have to be uh, somebody that's got a perfect memory of the Old Testament or somebody that's got a perfect uh, memory of history. Just remember a couple key dates. Memorize 722 BC, the very key date. Memorize 605. It's the first time that Babylon came and attacked. They attacked a total of uh, three times, as as we know. But um, so you see this in chapter one, excuse me, you see this in chapter one, where his Daniel and his friends, and and like I said, they're not, they're not sitting there launching a culture war, they're finding contentment, um, where they're at, hauled off into, into Babylon, and there is a time to stand against some of the things, certainly we need to stand against in our own families and in our church, um, but I'm, I'm just saying that we, you see a pattern with Daniel, um, so yeah, and, and certainly Daniel 1 is probably one of the most famous stories, I would say, if you're looking at the book of Daniel, and that is where Daniel is uh, with his dietary restrictions, um, and he's standing firm, 
that he he didn't want to give in to some of the Babylonian diet. Um, and he's just uh, seeing that the Lord, and he's saying just flat out, he's saying, um, I I want to stay firm to what I believe is is true. So you see that right away out of the gate in chapter one. And what what tremendous pressure this guy was under. I mean, imagine as a young man being hauled off to a foreign capital and just being in an enemy land like that. So beautiful text. And I love verse eight in chapter one. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies. Um, just a man that was committed at a very young age. And certainly doesn't that inspire us today when we see a young person much, much younger in age, chronological age, just making a, a decision to stand fast for the Lord. Yeah, my experience, Mark, has been that sometimes the younger generation who's rooted in the Word of God can be more inclined to take a stand and, and hold firm to the truth than even some of the older generation, because for them, the, the normalcy bias kicks in, they, they just can't let themselves believe that some of the evil, like uh, we talk about in our Spirit of the Antichrist books, you hear it not by works, could really be true. And so they just sort of have this dazed look, and they just sort of go along with the status quo. But young people today know something's up. And if they'll search for answers from the Word of God, starting first of all with the gospel, if they'll first place their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, He's the only one that can forgive sin. He died and rose again to pay our personal penalty for sin. And if they'll trust in Him, they can be saved. And then if they go to the Scriptures for spiritual growth and begin to connect the dots of what all is going on in this crazy world— then I think, you know, we should be encouraged that there are a number of young people who are standing firm that, 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 you know, are following in the footsteps of Daniel. Don't you agree? Totally agree. Totally agree. And it is exciting. You know, you see in every age, you see certain young ones that are just holding on. We have a number of people in our church that are holding strong in their faith. Um, and you see some that are giving into the pressure of the woke, the communist culture that's coming. Um, but, you know, what I love about Daniel so much is by the end of chapter one, we learn that Daniel had been in uh, Babylon for over 70 years, over 70 years. And that's all. I, I think what's so impressive about that is that's 70 years of a quiet, faithful witness to the Lord. That is just a beautiful testimony for, for the Lord. So I'm, I'm certainly, and, and I think that's what we're talking about right there is that even if you're not um, steeped in prophecy, you could start with Daniel chapter one and just be inspired right there. Amen. So, yep. And All then right, chapter uh, two. Chapter two, certainly. Well, you get you get to chapter two, and you have one of probably the most important chapters in the book of Daniel as far as prophecy goes, um, and it's just beautiful how it lays it out. And certainly, so if you're unfamiliar with the book of Daniel, let me just start there for those that would not be uh, having ever read it before. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar over Babylon has a dream and it's a it's a God in uh, given dream and he cannot understand uh, the meaning of this dream. And uh, like a like a Hallmark movie. Sorry, I will rip on Hallmark movies. Uh, <laughs> he he. Uh, he asked his wise men to come in and, and help him with uh, the meeting. But Nebuchadnezzar is not a fool. And he knows that his, his uh, wise men, his, his counselors have been kind of 
uh, cheesing on some of their interpretations in the past with their dream books that they had and trying to understand all that. So Nebuchadnezzar rightly wants not just the interpretation, because anybody can make up a, a $2 interpretation of something. He wants to know the actual dream from them. And and it's it the, the storyline itself is another beautiful indicator of, of the inspired word of God. So um and that's really where the drama centers. And then but of course uh as the story progresses no one can understand uh you know what what the dream actually was. It's unable and the wise men even uh confess that. That's what's quite great about the text is the wise men even confess that they could not make known the dream to the king. And and so their inability is where Daniel just comes along and shines, not because of Daniel himself, but because uh, God revealed it to him. And we see that starting down in uh, verse 19, it says, then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And immediately, what does Daniel do? He turns around in verse 20, and he starts just praising and worshiping God because God revealed something to him. How inspiring that is for us. What an example in the faith that is for us. But um, the meat of the chapter really gets into uh, through a number of circumstances when Daniel is finally brought before Nebuchadnezzar. And you see that down in um, he starts interpreting the dream and giving the, the actual message of the dream down in verse 31. So did you have anything that you wanted to break me up there, JB, or? No, I think that's awesome. Uh, we need to define what the statue was because uh, Daniel not only miraculously tells the king what his dream was, uh, which God allowed him to do, but then he interprets it. And that statue really provides the framework of human history uh, until the, the end of the age, the, when, when Christ comes back and ushers in the long-awaited kingdom. Amen. And I think that that statue... This is another one, you know, when I we started out the podcast, I think I made some sort of comment that if you're kind of messed up on theology, sometimes the root cause of that is because you haven't studied Daniel. And one of those key passages that I have in mind is Daniel chapter two, to fail to understand Daniel chapter two. And so certainly we, we see that with this statue that is in this dream that was given to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and it is just remarkable how much history was foretold uh, to through through Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar and I want to just remind people that as we go through this we're not just pulling information from Daniel chapter 2 we're pulling information from Daniel 7 as well um, and so we, you can kind of compare scripture and scripture and you come to a solid understanding of which nations these were so because of that, we know, of course, and Daniel tells them that the first uh, nation represented in the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw was this this head of gold, which was, of course, Nebuchadnezzar and oh. Babylon. Yeah. yeah, yep, yep. And um, as the statue progressed down, then then we move into the second um, second aspect, the second part of the statue, which. We, really, we know historically, and we know from chapter seven was Medo Persia, which of course was two nations really that came together, the Medes and the Persians. Uh, they came together as two nations. And so we see this in Daniel chapter two, and we see this again in 
Daniel chapter 7, these two nations that became Medo-Persia, which um, Babylon certainly did historically fall to Medo-Persia. And uh, then right on after that uh, comes Alexander the Great with Greece. Alexander the Great with Greece. Um, and, you know, his... His this, the history between Alexander the Great is just remarkable all in itself. I would encourage people just to go study that. Um, how how many as he took on? He had uh, but thirty thousand men, if I remember right, uh, from history, and he took on armies uh, by the Medo Persians that had hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and he just kept conquering and conquering. And there's no human explanation for that other than God allowed that to happen. Yeah. And so time-wise, of course, the Babylonian Empire, we're talking 605, 606 BC, like you talked about, the Medo-Persian Empire, 536 BC, Greece, uh, 330 BC. And then uh, what comes next in this uh, overview of history that, that Daniel's, or rather Nebuchadnezzar's dream represents? Controversy. <laughs> well i mean for those of us who believe the bible and it's a right. grammatical historical setting yes exactly well not for us but yes if you can read a lot into this text if you're not careful if you're not careful if you're not a good student of scripture but in daniel 2 what we see is then we see the roman empire and it's such a beautiful text with the language where it talks about the iron uh legs in the statue and and how it was going to be um, fulfilled with two legs. And certainly, well, you see this in the Roman Empire um, and you see the iron crushing all things. That's in verse 40. That's exactly what Rome did. Uh, and I really, it's remarkable to me how accurate um, the scripture is just that there's two legs because don't we see two branches of the Roman Empire? Uh, we, we have a Western branch um, and that's, what most people are familiar with that that fell in 476 AD, but the Eastern part didn't fall till 1453 AD. Um, and so the Roman empire, it included a lot. And I think we'd be careful to point this out. It included most of, of Europe. It included Spain, the British Isles, even India, even India, all the way down there. Um, so as we go down, you see these, this iron crushing the, the remnants of the world. Well, it reminds you of the armies of Rome, right? With the army uh, that, that wore the iron legs, the iron shack, the iron on their legs for the armor, um, crushing, crushing the remnants of the former empire. So this, this uh, Daniel, of course, we started out about 600 and you were talking about JB just a minute ago about the timeline of the metal Persians and the Greece, but I think it's important to keep in mind for people, too, that that doesn't mean um, Daniel just sat back and wrote these things at those times. This was all written down in Daniel's lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. He he's it's prophetic. And that's what's controversial yep. about it is it's so remarkable in its fulfillment historically that liberal scholars who don't believe in the inspiration of Scripture have insisted, well, Daniel must have wrote it after all this, because that's how accurate it is. But the Roman Empire started around 27 B.C. And then uh, as we finish up chapter two, here, there's one more piece to the puzzle. You've got the four empires, Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greece, 
and then the Roman Empire. But here's the part that impacts Bible prophecy, because there's one more oh, aspect of that yeah. Roman Empire. It's not a fifth kingdom, mind no, you. No, no. It's yep. the same fourth kingdom, but it's revived in the end times. And that brings us to the toes of the, the statue. The toes. Yep. Yep. The toes. And certainly when we when we get to chapter seven, we'll be able to tie this in a little bit better in chapter seven. But the, the toes represent the 10 aspects, the 10 uh, kingdoms or kings of, of the coming revived Roman Empire. And I think we need to be also careful with that, JB, and, and just to find for people um, that it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that when the revived Roman Empire comes, it's it's not like it's going to look exactly like the, the the last Roman Empire. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to, you know, have the exact same banners and the same exact armor and march around with swords and all that. And I think people kind of get down a little bit of a trail with that, thinking things that we're not saying. But it certainly does mean that the the boundaries of it are going to look pretty similar to the last Roman Empire. Yeah, just like you had a Western half with uh, Rome and an Eastern half with Constantinople, we're going to see that again. Um, you know, the statue has two legs and it has 10 toes. And uh, so the revived Roman Empire relates to the, to the feet and the 10 toes. And uh, someday... Uh, that's going to happen again. And that's, you know, you, you you correlate scripture with scripture and you begin to see this all taking shape in the book of Revelation. Uh, Daniel and Revelation go hand in hand. But uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to kind of give a summary here of the next few chapters. And then I want to bring us up to chapter seven, which has many parallels to chapter two. In fact, I want to mention in the Not By Works book of charts, diagrams, and illustrations, we have several charts that relate to the book of Daniel, including an overview of the whole book, and then a, a chart on the statue, and then a chart comparing Dan, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's statue that Mark just described from chapter two with Daniel's vision which I'm going to ask Mark to give us some commentary on uh, next here in just a moment. And then, of course, the biggie comes after that, and that's Daniel's 490-year plan. And we have a chart on that as well. If you're interested in checking out that chart, you can just go to notbyworks.org, click on the store button, and in the book section, search for the Not By Works book of theological charts, diagrams, and illustrations. So we talked about, you know, Daniel's integrity in chapter one, uh, great application, as Mark said, then the famous statue that Nebuchadnezzar had in his dream in chapter two. And then the first, really the first, you know, seven chapters of of Daniel deal with God's program for the world, an outline of human history, uh, if you will. Uh, and so chapter three is the famous section where we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, refusing to bow down to the king, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, and they're thrown into the fiery furnace, but God miraculously delivers them. We could preach, you know, a whole sermon on that, oh or multiple sermons. Uh, chapter four is the bizarre chapter of Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. Uh, and then chapter five, the scene shifts from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar, and that's when we have the God's famous handwriting on the wall. Uh, that's where that phrase comes from, actually. And then, of course, we get to the Medo-Persian Empire in chapter six, and Darius, uh, the leader there, and Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. But miraculously, once again, God's power is shown. Remember, the whole theme, I believe, is stated in chapter four, which is the most high rules in the kingdom of men. So you've got, you know, Daniel 
standing up for truth in chapter one, yet surviving. You've got the fiery furnace incident in chapter three. Uh, you've got uh, the lion's den situation in chapter six, and yet God's plan will not be thwarted. But then from chapter seven on, which we're about to shift to now, it, the scene goes from historical to purely prophetic, and it looks to really the future. And the first thing that happens is Daniel has a vision of some pretty bizarre beasts that essentially provide the same message with a little more detail of the statue from chapter two. So Mark, if you don't mind, dive into chapter seven and break that down for us. Yes, I will. Absolutely. I'm going to touch on one thing. I know JB's trying to move me along a little, little faster, but I love, I have to bring out something in chapter three. I, when Nebuchadnezzar, when Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he was, he was, it was revealed to him in chapter two, his, his kingdom represents this in the statue, the head of gold, and he's got to make a whole statue of gold. And then you famously have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they would not bow down, they tell Nebuchadnezzar that uh, our God is able, our God is able to deliver us. But even if not, he says, they say in verse 18, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship that golden image which you have set up. Yeah. I love that attitude. I just love that oh, attitude. It's one of the most powerful expressions of faith in all scripture. It but is. Even if he doesn't, he's still God. It reminds me of Job's famous statement, though he slay me, yet yeah. will I trust him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, powerful passage. Again, I wish yep. we had time to really break yep. down all of these, but uh, from a prophetic perspective, remember, we're talking here with Mark Fontecchio from Return to the Word Ministries up in Alaska, and we're talking about why you should stop right now and read the book of Daniel today, because it is so significant for end times prophecy. In fact, it's fair to say you cannot understand biblical prophecy apart from the foundational truths that are unveiled in the book of Daniel. So we're focusing primarily on some of the key prophetic passages. We talked about chapter two. Now we come to chapter seven. Chapter seven. Yes. Amen. And I agree with those sentiments, JB, that I think if you had one old, I mean, if you were limited on that old, you know, on island right and you only had one prophetical book from the old testament i would have to say i'd probably choose the book of daniel i really would yeah. it's that important so in in chapter seven it's the first year of belshazzar's uh reign as king of babylon and daniel now it's daniel's turn to have dreams and visions and as you uh illustrated so well um he definitely uh the the teaching that is revealed to him here parallels a lot of chapter two uh, but it's we get more details. So first, um, we, Daniel saw four great beasts. And, and like you said, they're kind of like no beasts that we've ever seen. Uh, maybe they're different down there by where you live, JB, but I've never seen anything like these in the woods. Well, we do have some some Bigfoots, uh, <laughs> uh, and we have uh, we haven't seen any chupacabras up here, but we've seen some other cryptids. But uh, but yeah, this makes uh, any cryptid that we've talked about in our recent study of the paranormal, or any of the ones that I address in Volume Two of Spirit of the Ant Antichrist, Daniel's vision makes those cryptids look like uh, you know the Easter Bunny or something. Yeah, well, and so Daniel he says in. Um, in verse two, he says, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of, of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts. That's the four great beasts that we're about to set up coming up different from one another. And the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Um, certainly, again, 
another reference to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Um, so we have Babylon represented again in that first world empire. And the second one is, is represented down in verse five, uh, like a bear, it says. I'm not a fan of, of bear um, since I live in Alaska. <laughs> anytime, anytime scripture talks of bear, I get a little terrified. Well, plus you're a Green Bay Packers fan and you hate the bears, right? Uh, well, yeah, that, there you go. That's that. Yes. I actually, never mind. We won't even chase that. But um, <laughs> so it raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its, its teeth. And remember how we said that the Meadow Persian empire was a divided it was really two nations that came together and one was more passive and one was more um aggressive and so the Medes were passive the the persians were the more aggressive and that's why scripture says there that it was this this second beast was raised up on on one side again let me just remind you not describing history after but predicting history before it happened. And as you said before, I think it's so sad that the doubters, the haters of the word of God that don't want to be under the authority of God's word, they, the only thing they can say is this must have been written after. Mm -hmm. That's because it's that accurate. And it's based on conjecture. There's absolutely no justification for that. It's such a sad, sad statement of unbelief. So... And then we get down to um, after the the Medo Persian uh, beast, we get down to the third world empire, which is Greece, um, down in verse six of Daniel chapter seven, and that is has uh, it's got four wings. This beast does. It's like a leopard. I'll, I'll have the the reader of scripture notice it says like a leopard. Daniel's not trying to describe actual animals. Um, he's trying to put into words what he saw the best he could understand. Um, and it had four heads and dominion was given to it. And then we get to the, and certainly the, 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 uh, the four heads and, and the uh, four wings of that third empire is Greece. And the wings represent the speed at which Alexander the great was able to take over the known world. And then the four uh, heads, you know, Alexander, as he famously um lived a very, very interesting life, but he, he lived it quickly. <laughs> we'll say he lived in a short amount of time, right? Well, his, his kingdom was divided up by his four generals exactly again, as foretold in scripture. And, uh, and yeah, then we get, then yeah. you get to the Roman empire. And by the way, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at from our chart book at the, the parallels between uh, which I know you're going to get to it in a second, between the statue and these visions. And it is unreal. I mean, Daniel is just reiterating the same thing God had already revealed through Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But, you know, you've got the Babylonian Empire with the first beast, the Medo-Persian with the bear, and then the Greek that you just talked about with the leopard and the wings and the heads. And now the Roman Empire, the fiercest of all. Yep. Well, certainly, and and you just brought it up, and um, I don't I don't have your chart book in front of me, so, uh, but I know that in verse seven, um, when when Daniel says about the fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. I mean, just look at the descriptive words there: dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong, um, and it had huge iron teeth. Again, the iron legions of Rome, right? Again, it, just like chapter two, we see that iron brought in. As, as a descriptive term, um, devouring, breaking in pieces, 
trampling with residue, uh, the residue with its feet, just eating up the nations that had gone before it again and had 10 horns. Well, that's kind of interesting at that point, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It, <laughs> it had 10 horns again what did we say before in daniel 2 we said that uh the the statue had 10 toes and so now we start to see horns in scripture um it's one of the things i make the church in, in our up here memorize is horns represent uh, just a position of power a position of of rulership because it represents um a, authority and power and rule and and so there's a there's power there and it's, it represents the Kings um, that are going to rule over this revived Roman Roman empire with these 10. Um, And it's, it's just encouraging. And you know, the, to see this all laid out ahead of time, but the thing that strikes me, JB is as try as they might, nobody that has wanted to try to explain away the Bible and say that this has already been fulfilled has ever been able to say that there's been, 10 toes, 10 horns, 10 kings, all ruling at the same exact time in history over this revived Roman Empire area. Right. Never happened. And, um, you know, we could speculate all day how that's going to play out after the rapture during that future 70th week of Daniel that we're going to talk about next. Uh, But the fact of the matter is there's nothing that corresponds to that historically. So, uh, and just as the other prophecies of Daniel relating, you know, to the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, all were fulfilled. The first Roman Empire, all were fulfilled precisely to the detail as Scripture says they were. We can expect the future one to come about uh, precisely as Scripture uh, says it would. So, again, uh, just for the sake of time, uh, let's uh, let's move on. Uh, chapter eight uh, deals with uh, historical figure Antiochus Epiphanes. We'll have to come back to that another time, because I really want to focus on the prophetic parts, and that leads us to chapter 9, probably the most key passage, verses 24 to 27 of chapter 9, that unveil God's plan of the ages, in which he describes a 490-year plan. Talk to us about the so-called 70 weeks of Daniel. Well, it's it's some beautiful stuff in, in Daniel 9, and I think um, again, going back to that earlier statement that we made, made about the book of Daniel and how um, Christians today d- are basing their eschatology, their doctrines of the end times, without considering what Daniel is saying. Again, Daniel 9 is is right square and center on the, the heart of the matter. Um, and because we will remember that the whole chapter is really concerning the nation of Israel, not the church. And, and that is... Um, paramount for Christians to understand because the the nature of these 70 weeks uh, are all for the nation of Israel. And so um, it confuses new students to scripture when we start reading in, in verse 24, where it starts talking about 70 weeks. It's a week of years. Um, and that's where it confuses, I think, new students to scripture. It's not literally a week. This isn't saying 70 of your vacation weeks are going to be <laughs> or anything like all right. Yeah, well, remember the Bible wasn't written in English, and so it was written in this case, this particular part was Hebrew, and it's the Hebrew word Shabuah, 
which a Shabua means a period of seven years or a period of seven days. And it's used both ways, depending on the context. In Daniel 9, clearly Daniel has years in mind because he was reflecting on the 70 years of prophecy through Jeremiah of exile. And so it's coming to an end. And as you said, he had been there 70 years. And so he prays and he asks God, hey, what comes next for your people? And God reveals to him not another 70-year segment of his plan, but in this case, a 70 times 7, a 490-year plan for his people Israel and for Jerusalem. Uh, and we know this is the case because if you do the math, Daniel very clearly tells us the beginning point and, and, and several points along the way. And we know that the first 483 years of that 490-year prophecy were fulfilled precisely to the day. So he, there's no question here for anyone who you know has half a brain that this is talking about 70 weeks of years, as you said. Uh, but you're right. The English translation sometimes confuses people, but it really shouldn't. It's, it would have been perfectly understandable to the original recipients in Daniel's day. And I would, I would just add to that, what a remarkable thing as Daniel uh, 9 starts out, that we have Daniel reading Jeremiah. Again, another, another beautiful, just, man, it, it, it comforts me in my faith just to read of this wonderful Old Testament saint sitting there reading Jeremiah's words. I mean, it's just, um, you know, the nation has been desecrated from, from Babylon, and yeah. here Daniel is sitting there in, in ba Daniel is reading, you know, Jeremiah in Babylon and just, yeah, and how ironic is it that here we are, you know, some 24, 2,500 years later, and we're facing devastation. We're facing the, the rapidly disintegrating moral and, and constitutional values in our country. If the Lord tarries is coming, it is in all likelihood uh, the, going to be the case that America ceases to exist. And and yet God's people, the way Daniel was reading Jeremiah, we ought to be reading Daniel, uh, yep. kind of be encouraged and see how things play out. And we ought to be seeking God the way Daniel was seeking God, asking for help and strength and guidance. And uh, and yet it's it's kind of ironic that Daniel is uh, kind of neglected by so many students of Scripture. And even his prayer, JB, even his prayer that starts in verse three, one of the most beautiful prayers in the Old Testament, one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture about how he's just worshiping God. And he's I mean, again, here we see this Old Testament saint sitting there reading Jeremiah. And then after after he's reading Jeremiah, he goes to prayer. Uh, just in worshiping his God, um, that encourages me. So back back to the 70 weeks. Um, so it, it's remarkable, as you, you point out, I've heard your teaching, obviously, on this many times. And as you point out so eloquently, um, look for the time markers starting in like verse 25 and on in Daniel chapter nine. Look for those time markers. And, and I think that principle, by the way, just on a tangent, I think that principle holds true when you're looking at a lot of prophetical scripture. Um, certainly in the book of Revelation, there's certain time markers in, in key passages. And I think there's time markers um, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew. Um, so we, we, we see those time markers. Those are critical to understanding to, to understanding the rest of this text. And um, so verse 25 starts out and says, know therefore and understand the irony. <laughs> How many people today don't know the meaning of this text? And they sure don't understand it because and they, they don't. Yeah, exactly. Um, so from, and 
you know, I just I just was actually in this text um, on uh, on on uh, the week before Easter up here, Resurrection Sunday, um, in in just talking about how to the day this predicts the the triumphal entry of of Christ, and so it's just remarkable. But um, so from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, so we see those those time markers that from the going forth. Well, what command to restore and build Jerusalem? That's pretty specific. That is really pretty specific. Yeah. And when did that happen? We know from Nehemiah chapter two that that happened on March 5th, 444 BC. Yes. We have a, we have an exact date, at least the way we count dates now. They didn't, at that time, they weren't calling it March 5th, 444 BC. But in retrospect, we now have pinpointed these dates and this is the way we label it. So we, it's the same day in God's history no matter what you call it. But from our perspective today, it was March 5th, 444 BC. And if you march forward, uh, you know, 483 years, keeping in mind that a Jewish year was 360 days, the lunar calendar, and that's 173,880 days. And guess where we land? 173,880 days after Artaxerxes' decree uh, that uh, Daniel was referring to. Yeah, well, and and we land exactly at the triumphal entry of Christ, which again, we can pinpoint down to March 30th, 33 AD. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, someone that's got a little bit of a different counting system and maybe it's, you know, one year this way, that way doesn't, doesn't matter. Yeah. We're talking about a historical reality that was predicted, which makes me always question why wasn't the whole nation of Israel, <laughs> if they had read Daniel nine and understood why weren't they all, the entire nation out there when Christ, um, but unbelief is is the reason, right? Right, which and they should have been. But uh, I get that question a lot. I'm sure you do too. Of, of yep. how how in the world, given all that's unfolding in the tribulation, will the nation of Israel still be subject to deception? Well, I mean, we could ask the same question about the first advent of Christ. I mean, all the signs were there. It was spelled out unquestionably, even to the day, as we just read here in Daniel, and yet they still believed the lie and rejected Christ and crowned him with thorns. So uh, Jesus says during the future tribulation period, deception is going to reach unprecedented heights. Um, I heard someone say just recently that since 2020, with all that's been going on in the world, we've probably used the word unprecedented and unprecedented amount of times. And, uh, and so, but deception will absolutely reach unprecedented heights, according to Jesus' own words in the Olivet Discourse, uh, when the great deceiver comes and tries to deceive the whole world, Revelation 12, I think it is. So um, it, it shouldn't surprise us, but thankfully, there will be a remnant of Jews who do believe the gospel, and they will be regathered into the land supernaturally when Christ returns to usher in the long-awaited kingdom. So finish up with the 490-year plan. We've got the first 483 years, but what's going on with those final seven years? Yeah, it's very interesting to me how it starts in verse 26, because again, looking at those time markers, and it's so funny because I remember when I was first starting starting out in, in my one of my first pastorates, I had a young guy come to me and he, he accused me of putting a gap in verse 26 that, well, you're putting a gap about the, before that last week of years, before that last seven years. And I sat him down just with his Bible, nothing else. And I said, what does verse 26 start with? 
Well, after the 62 weeks, which because of how it's worded, that's actually after the first 69 weeks of years, the Messiah shall be cut off. Oh, well, there's a gap there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's a pause in the action. Something's changing. And the prince who is uh, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and sanctuary. And certainly that that ended. And when it talks about a flood in verse 26, let's be careful to note that it's not talking about a flood of water. It's talking about a flood of destruction. Yeah, um, it's a metaphor. Yeah, yeah, we see that clearly. So, yeah, just to just to you know restate what you just said because um, i want i want to be sure our listeners don't miss this um we believe let's just start with what we believe and then show you why we believe scripture proves this we believe that right now in this present age we are living in a gap of time between the 69th and 70th weeks of daniel between the end of the 483rd year and the start of the 484th year and we sometimes get accused of sort of forcing that uh, you know, on the text. But all you have to do, as Mark is, is so perfectly showing us right here, is look at the time markers. D Daniel clearly says that the 483rd year will end with Christ's coming, which we now know historically occurred on the date of the triumphal entry. Uh, and they, you know, he came in and they crowned him with thorns instead of a king's crown, which was all part of God's plan. But then Daniel himself tells us that some things are going to happen after that 483rd year, uh, such as, as he just mentioned, the uh, crucifixion of Christ, which happened a few days later after the triumphal entry, and the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened some 40 years later, or almost 70 AD. So those things happen after the 483rd year. And then it's not till after those things happen that Daniel says, then at some point in the future, the final Shabua, the final seven-year period, will commence. And that that final seven-year period commences with what, Mark? Well, in it's verse 27, isn't it? Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And certainly we, re, uh, we, we see from the progress of Revelation in the New Testament that we know the rapture is going to happen before he, the Antichrist actually uh, confirms that covenant with the people of Israel alive at that time. Um, but in the middle of the week, look at how timely this is compared to uh, what we're seeing in the world today. And look at how consistent this is with New Testament revelation. Um, the Antichrist will confirm a covenant with many for one week. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. Um, so again, the Antichrist is going to rise and he's going to make a covenant. Um, I, I think we've talked before on, on Not By Works uh, that one of the reasons why we believe that he will have a reason to make this covenant is because of that battle of uh, Gog and Magog from Ezekiel 37 and 38. And so we certainly see that um, and that would fit. You know, now I know there's some that might disagree with the timing of that, and that's not such a, a an important point, but it would certainly fit and give the Antichrist reason. And we we talked about, I believe it was last week, about how Syria and and Turkey and Russia are all going to be involved in that battle. And boy, do you see the handwriting on the wall with that? To use the pun of Daniel. Yeah, no pun intended. Right? Yeah, you said uh, 37 and 38. It's actually Ezekiel 38 and 39. But yeah, we, my, my we know what you mean. Right. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah. And Randy and I talked on uh, yesterday on our world events uh, update about the the Battle of Gog and Magog and how again things are remarkably uh, 
taking shape. But, uh, you know, speaking of that abomination of desolation that Daniel talks about at the midpoint of that final seven years, which is all yet future, you know, we ha- it hasn't happened yet because the, the, the Antichrist hasn't signed a treaty guaranteeing the peace of Israel yet. And so, but uh, some other kind of famous uh, guy in the New Testament quotes Daniel by name and references that abomination of desolation, the desecration of the temple. Uh, And who is it that mentions that? That that might be Jesus. Um, Jesus or, Christ, the Son of God. As, yeah, the Son yeah. of God. I was just going to say, <laughs> God the Son. And our Messiah, our Savior, praise God for that. So, yeah, when those skeptics uh, claim that, you know, someone else must have written Daniel or that Daniel is not, you know, had to be written later, uh, you know, as you once said, we're going to go with Jesus on this. I mean, he yeah. said that he attributed it to Daniel and he affirms Daniel's statement. So, Real quickly, because I know we're running long here, uh, he the final seven-year period is what the New Testament refers to as the tribulation. It's referred to in the Old and New Testaments alike by a variety of different names, the, the day of the Lord's wrath, the overflowing scourge, the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel, but it's all referring to that same period of time, which will happen when the Antichrist rises and takes power. He will rule the world. Uh, I believe, indwelt by Satan himself for a period of seven years after the rapture that will be culminated in the Battle of Armageddon when Christ comes back and the Antichrist and his sidekick, the uh, false prophet, uh, which is the focus of my forthcoming book, The Spirit of the False Prophet, uh, they will both be cast into the lake of fire. So uh, excellent summary there of the, the key passages that speak to the times in which we live and the prophetic significance of these times, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 9. Uh, real quickly, let me just uh, summarize uh, chapters 10 through 12, and then I'll throw it back to you if you have any closing thoughts or applications uh, about this phenomenal book uh, here that is so meaningful. Uh, chapter 10, we get uh, sort of an introduction to Daniel's final vision, which is in chapter 11, the vision of both Antiochus and the Antichrist. Chapter 11, there's some textual clues that, first of all, he's talking about the historical figure. It was still yet future from Daniel's day, but it's historical from our perspective of Antiochus. But then he shifts into the far-reaching prophetic days of that 70th week when he's talking about, once again, the Antichrist. And we get some pretty valuable information from the last part of chapter 11 about the characteristics of the Antichrist that I talk about uh, in my Spirit of the Antichrist books. And then final, finally, we have Daniel's great vision of the Great Tribulation in chapter 12. So Mark, uh, kind of wrap it up for us, summarize some of the, the salient applications from this great prophetic book. Well, I think one of the biggest applications that we kind of left on the table there in Daniel 9 a little bit is that um, to anybody that, you know, we've talked before so many times about the rapture and the timing of the rapture and the tribulation. And for anybody that's mid-trib or pre-wrath or anything like that, um, you know, the first 483 years of, of Daniel 9 were all for the nation of Israel. They were all for the nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the focus of it. And again, so how would the last seven years, the remaining seven years not be. And so, you know, Daniel actually doesn't really talk. We've, we've mentioned this before. It doesn't talk about the rapture or the church or anything like that, but it allows for it. And it, it, it certainly 
points in if you understand what's going on in Daniel 9 you can see that the rapture of the church is that blessed hope and so thank God for that and just thank God for these these um, wonderful saints of old Daniel Shadrach Meshach and Abednego just um, just wonderful saints of of God used by him in a powerful way that um, has inspired me in my faith and I hope it inspires our listeners as well Amen. You should read the book of Daniel today. Stop what you're doing. Go back and read. It's only 12 chapters. I mean, uh, it won't take you long. Uh, don't get hung up on all the, the details. I mean, the, there's some great commentaries out there and great uh, lectures and videos that, that I've done and Mark's done that can help you. But just step back and read it devotionally for the value of it and see what lay in store for God's, you know, for the world and for us and God's people. So, uh, yeah, just an amazing book. And I think we talked about in a previous discussion that we had uh, on this podcast, Mark, about uh, the, the pre-trib rapture being a non-negotiable. Um, you know, I respect the uh, pre-wrath folks that insist that the rapture happens, you know, roughly two-thirds to three-quarters of the way through the tribulation. I respect it only in this sense, and that is they understand that the church is not going to face the prophetic wrath of God, but they miss a huge point here that you just made, and that is that the entire seven years, besides being the wrath of God, which I think we can prove scripturally, but even if we set that aside for a moment, the entire seven years is part of a 490-year plan that is wholly Jewish in nature, and the church had no role to play in the first 483 years. And so why would all of a sudden we you know, be inserted into the final uh, seven years? There is a distinction between God's program for the church and God's program for Israel in Scripture. So, Mark, Amen. thank you so much for uh, for sharing your time with us. Uh, we'll have you on again uh, soon. In fact, uh, we're thinking about maybe uh, talking again uh, tomorrow about a great topic. This is one of the questions that that I get, uh, and I'm sure you do often, one of my probably top three questions that people call or email me about, and that is, how can I find a a good church, or what should I look for in a good church, or, you know, this is what's going on at my church, is this a reason to leave the church, you know? So we're going to talk about some sort of non-negotiables uh, when it comes to the local church. What are some lines in the sand uh, that uh, we think Scripture tells us we should draw? So hopefully uh, we'll be able to do that one tomorrow. We'll post it as uh, soon as it's done, and look for, you can look forward to our reflections on that important topic as well. So, Mark, thanks again for being with us. Thank you, JB. Always an honor to be with you, my friend. So I encourage folks to check out uh, returntotheword.com and, of course, notbyworks.org. Lots of great material on both websites. You can check out some of the recent podcasts that we've done here at NBW Ministries. Uh, but I encourage you to read uh, the book of Daniel today. It, it will really uh, kind of connect the dots for you on God's uh, plan of the ages. But until next time, God bless you, everyone. Thanks for all that you're doing for us. Don't forget to check out the Not By Work store. We've got lots of great resources there and some uh, pretty cool merchandise that you can use, uh, clothing and cups and hats and things like that that are great discussion starters uh, for folks. So when they see what is NBW, and you can begin to share the gospel with them and talk about how it's Not By Works uh, but by grace. And so that's all available there uh, on the merchandise section of notbyworks.org. And uh, until next time, have a great uh, rest of the day, and we will see you soon.